This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On Air. Hello and welcome to a few more steps on this radio journey on the Buddhist path to enlightenment. I hope your week's been happy and your coming weekend full of peace and at least a little meditation. We've been looking at mind training texts concerned with developing and maintaining bodhicitta, the mind focused on attaining enlightenment for the benefit of all living beings. Those of you who were with us last week will know that we're going through a list of 22 instructions in the mind training exercises, 11 of which we covered last week. So this week we'll be going through the rest of them. However, for those who were not with us last week, let's just quickly buzz through the first 11 again. But before we do that, take a minute just to set our motivation for this program, remembering that the best intention we can have is to attain enlightenment for the sake of all beings. Thank you. Now I'm not going to repeat the very cryptic verse that describes the 22 instructions. I'll just read through the last 11 cryptics when we come to them. But we'll just very briefly go through the first lot again. Basically, the instructions start off by telling us to be specially mindful to do when we do all our actions, even eating, sleeping and going to the toilet, so that we do them with a motivation to attain enlightenment for the sake of all beings, that bodhicitta motivation. The second instruction tells us that even if we encounter obstacles and difficulties, we must keep our bodhicitta motivation strong. It's best to start every action with a bodhicitta motivation, as we have done for this program, and to end it also with a bodhicitta dedication. And that's the third instruction. Endure both whichever arises, says the next instruction, and that means that we use both the good and the bad things that happen in our lives to help our Dharma practice. If we're afflicted by bad experiences, we practice patience, compassion and renunciation. And if by good, then we can practice generosity in helping others as much as possible. The fifth instruction is basically to keep all the vows and commitments we've taken so far, not only the mind-training ones, and we have to hold them more dear than our lives. Sounds awfully jingoistic, even if religiously, but it means that karmically it's better to give up our lives than give up our commitments. Once the life is finished, that's it. But the karma of breaking vows will bring us lots of ongoing suffering in the future. The instructions also tell us to be mindful to catch the delusions as they arise, use an antidote to weaken them, and then eventually to get rid of them completely. These three are called the three difficulties, and not without good reason. It's certainly not easy to catch the delusions as they show themselves and immediately apply an antidote to them, much less totally get rid of them. I mean, how easy is it to catch anger as it arises and immediately apply compassion or patience? And to get rid of such delusions, we have to develop a mind that can stay focused on an object for as long as we like and then use that mind to understand reality fully. That's not easy at all. Still, the text tells us a way to do it. It says we should follow a qualified teacher, develop virtuous mindsets, and find good living conditions. Now in New Zealand this is not difficult. We have some kind of access to many great teachers in the world. With effort and determination we can make our minds more and more virtuous and we have very good living conditions here. So at least down here at the bottom of the world we can find this instruction, we can follow this instruction comparatively easily. The text then goes on, meditate on the three non-declining attitudes. 
These are strong faith and respect for your teacher, enthusiasm for practicing the Dharma, and particularly the mind training, and a strong mindfulness to keep your vows and commitments purely. We also have to possess the three inseparables, which means making the actions of our body, speech and mind inseparable from virtuous actions with a good motivation, especially bodhicitta. Very helpful in doing this is not to have a strong bias in our mind, loving some things or people and hating others. Try, we are told, to see everything with an open mind, not seeing some things as good, others as bad, like slotting people into friend, enemy and stranger. And the last of the eleven instructions is to practice the mind training in depth and not, not just on the surface of our lives. Our sensory experiences can lead to either virtue or delusions, and it's up to us which it is. Delusion leads to negative karma and misery, virtue to positive karma and happiness. So which do you want? If we want to develop bodhicitta, we have to choose virtue. So basically that's what we covered last week. Now let's continue and look at the next set of instructions. The cryptic collection goes, Always meditate on special cases. Do not depend on other circumstances. At this time do the main practice. Avoid misinterpreting. Do not be erratic. Train wholeheartedly. Be liberated by two, examination and analysis. Do not overemphasize. Do not get angry. Do not be changeable. And do not wish for gratitude. I suppose you may guess what some of them are saying, but let's go through them one by one. First of all, always meditate on special cases. To take an example, and I'm, being, uh, I'm basing this on separate incidents that happened to my brother and a friend some time ago, so it's not all that uncommon. Suppose you run a business. You are friends with a family whose son in his early 20s is looking for a job. He seems like a presentable young man, and you like him. You have even let him stay at your house at times when he had nowhere else to go. Your business is taking off, and you need someone to help out, so you offer him a job. He's a keen worker, and he's soon settled in. He's a big help, and eventually you make him manager, and things run fine for a while. Then maybe there's a downturn in the economy, and money becomes tighter, even though your business hasn't lost many customers. But then it becomes a bit of a struggle, and you get up suspicion things are not what they seem. You have a good audit of the books, and it turns out that your manager has been siphoning off a bit on the side for himself for some time, and you've lost tens of thousands of dollars. How do you react to him? This is one of the special cases that this instruction is telling us about. It's easy to be loving and compassionate to those who are always helpful and kind to us, but it becomes a different story when somebody acts like this young man, doesn't it? Then we easily get very resentful and angry and may even plot to take revenge or wreak some terrible havoc on him. But that is not the way to think or act if we are practicing mind training. On such occasions, it's very important not to lose one's compassion and love for the person even though that doesn't mean we necessarily keep them in our, in our employ. My brother is a case in point. Luckily, neither he nor my friend who both had this kind of experience are vindictive people 
In fact, my brother is deeply Christian and is really like a saint. So he more or less shrugged his shoulders and put it all down to life experience, though the person who took advantage of him no longer works for him. It's when people we have really trusted and put our faith in that let us down badly that we have to summon all our strength and practice bodhicitta. One great master, Shantideva, even says that we should regard such people as our teacher because no one else gives us such an opportunity to practice patience, love and compassion. Of course, I'm not saying it's easy, not by a long talk. But we can always remember that the person who has let us down has created a lot of negative karma and will in due course suffer much more than we do and so develop some compassion for them. If we retaliate with harm, it just makes the situation so much worse. Then two people, oneself and the other, suffer. Whereas, if we react with compassion, not only do we not cause harm to another, but we ourselves suffer less. Why? Because anger is a state of suffering, but compassion is not. The next instruction says, do not depend on other circumstances. This relates to the example we have just gone through and tells us not to wait for the right circumstances to practice mind training. We can practice in any circumstances. And as we have seen, the worst circumstances are sometimes the best in which to practice. This reminds me of one story that His Holiness the Dalai Lama is fond of telling about one old Lama who came to see him Dharamsala where His Holiness lives. This old Lama had been in Chinese communist prisons for a long time where he had undergone great torture and humiliation. He had eventually been let out and had escaped over the Himalayas to Nepal and then on to India. Talking to His Holiness, this old Lama said that he had sometimes been in great danger in prison. Of course, His Holiness thought he was talking about the torture and how his life was threatened. But when he asked the old man what he meant, the Lama said, Sometimes I was in great danger of losing compassion for my torturers. This is the kind of mind training that I guess we should be aspiring for. Though I think if I was put into prison and tortured for many years, my compassion wouldn't last much more than a day. But imagine coming out of that situation knowing that you had not lost your compassion or love for your torturers. How powerful you'd be then. Nothing could really harm you. I hope that one day I can be like that, though I'm certainly not praying to land up in a communist torture chamber. When the next instruction says, at this time do the main practice, it is referring to our present precious human rebirth. That is what at this time means. We don't know what sort of situation we will be in in our next or following lives, so while we have this great opportunity, we shouldn't waste it. We've talked in a previous program about how rare and special a human birth with eight freedoms and ten endowments is. So as we have such a rebirth now, we must use it well. The main practice referred to is actually the three practices that are known as the principal aspects of the path. They are renunciation, bodhicitta and wisdom. Now is the time to give up our attachment for the things of this life, friends, possessions, this body and so on, and develop some renunciation towards this type of life. It's also time to turn our mind towards enlightenment, not only for ourselves, but also for all other suffering beings.
in other words, to develop bodhicitta. And to attain that state of enlightenment, we have to get at least some idea of what Buddha meant by selflessness or emptiness. Then we're also told to, to avoid misinterpreting. This means we have to be careful about interpreting the instructions so that we make them refer to worldly activities instead of the Dharma. There are six ways in which this could happen. First of all, we can be patient with non-virtuous activities instead of Dharma activities. For instance, fishermen spend a lot of time waiting patiently for a fish to bite. They may spend hours on the beach waiting for the big bite. While we are encouraged to develop patience, it's not this sort of patience. This is called wrong patience. Rather, it is when our Dharma practice seems to be going down the chute and nothing goes right with our meditation or study that we need to have patience, or when someone scolds us angrily. Then wrong taste is, for instance, when we spend hours playing computer games instead of spending hours on Dharma activities, like studying, meditating or helping others. Of course, we need to take time out to rest the mind, but our enthusiasm should be for Dharma activities, not worldly pursuits. Wrong compassion is compassion for very highly realized beings living in solitude in a mountain cave. We might think, oh, for poor fellow, it must be lonely, cold and miserable up there. But great beings are not objects of compassion, for they have removed all the causes of suffering. We don't, we don't feel compassion for the Buddha because he's already way beyond any suffering at all. Sentient beings should be our objects of compassion. Our intention can also be wrong if we focus on gaining great worldly rewards instead of making progress in the Dharma. So, for, if, if, for instance, an actor like Keanu Reeves, who I understand is a Buddhist, follows the mind training but is mainly focused on fame and fortune, his intention would be wrong. So that is four. Wrong patience, wrong taste, wrong compassion, and wrong intention. Then we have wrong guidance, which I would be following if I was to tell you to go out, have a few drinks, maybe to get into a fight, and then watch a porn movie. As a Buddhist monk, I should be encouraging you to practice the Dharma, follow ethics, and develop great love and compassion, and bodhicitta, and so on. Finally, we have wrong rejoicing. This is rejoicing in actions done out of ignorance and illusions, or rejoicing at enemies' misfortune. Going back to our example of the young man who ripped your business off, say you heard that he'd lost all his money in an investment and also had got cancer. Now you feel very happy and maybe think, great, serves him right, hope he rots. That is wrong rejoicing. In such a situation, even if we're not following the mind training, it's much better for us to develop compassion and even help if we can. So those are the six wrongs that make up misinterpreting. Then the text says, do not be erratic. In another program, I've mentioned the tendency in some Westerners to get very enthusiastic about the Dharma when, they first, when first introduced to it. They do lots of practice at first, but then when results are painfully slow in coming, they start complaining and want to give up or find something new and exciting. This is being erratic. Dharma practice should be slow, steady and consistent. My teacher often used to say to me, Kali Kali, which means slowly, slowly. 
If our practice is intense for short periods of time, but we often take holidays, we will not go anywhere. My teachers have said it's better to do small amounts of practice regularly, consistently, and well than irregular and intense bouts. When I was in Bodhgaya some years ago now, I met a young man very new to the Dharma. He had attended some teachings, become very enthusiastic practitioner. Every day he would do a thousand full-length full prostrations before the stupa. One day I got talking to him and asked him how he was going. He looked very miserable and told me that he was finding it very difficult to do the prostrations. He'd started off well, but now his mind was just rebelling. What could he do? He wanted to purify his karma quickly, but it was so difficult. It was so obvious. He had metaphorically dived in at the deep end without having first learned how to swim. I told him to slow down, not do so many prostrations, and take it, take it much more easily. In other words, Kali Kali. We then go on to train wholeheartedly, which is pretty obvious. We're told to engage in the practice with confidence and self-discipline. So, for instance, if we wanted to do retreat on the mind-training practices, we would decide how long we wanted to be in retreat, how many sessions we would do each day, and then go about setting the retreat up. We will then put our focus on completing the retreat to plan with confidence. We now come to the 18th of the instructions, and that is, be liberated by two, examination and analysis. Liberated? Liberated from what? Well, liberated here refers to the delusions. This instruction is telling us to examine ourselves to see which delusion is strongest and then analyze to find out the objects that give rise to the delusion. Once we understand that, we can avoid or transform the objects and apply the antidote to the delusion. In time, by doing this, we can overcome the delusion, the delusion or, if you like, be liberated from it. I know some Theravadan monks carry around pictures of corpses in various states of decay, both to remind them of death and to help them overcome attachment to the human body. They are hardly likely to be attracted to a beautiful girl or boy if they saw them as a walking corpse now, would they? I don't know if you're brave enough to carry around pictures of rotten corpses in your wallet or purse. You might get some very strange looks on the bus if you were caught peering at something like that. But as we've mentioned before, there are other ways of overcoming attachment, like thinking of the ugly or repulsive aspects of the object, or thinking about death and so on. And if anger is our main enemy, we can concentrate on the emotion itself instead of the story, develop patience and compassion for a person irritating us, and so on. We talked briefly about delusions and their antidotes last week, but more fully in an, in an earlier program. Then the mind training tells us, do not overemphasize. This just means that if we do something virtuous, we don't need to make a big deal out of it. I have just copy-edited a short biography about a very great Tibetan master who died in 1991 by the name of Dilgo Kensarimshe. I never knew him, but by reputation, if he wasn't an enlightened being, he was very close. He was particularly connected to Bhutan and the Bhutanese royal family, especially the crown prince of the time, now the king of Bhutan. His name was Jigme Senge Wangchuk. One day in 1970, while Dilgo Kense Rinpoche was in retreat, 
he had a premonition that some danger threatened the life of the young crown prince. He told his attendant to make a special kind of offering called a torma, and that night Rinpoche did some ele- elaborate rituals. Late in the night, he told his attendant to take the torma out, throw it in a certain direction, and not look back. The attendant did so, but didn't know what was going on. It transpired that the crown prince, then 16, had been travelling in India when his car was involved in a head-on collision with a truck. The driver of the car and the prince's attendant were killed, and the prince was thrown three metres from the car. However, he only suffered a slight scrape to his head. Another attendant, who had been travelling in a leading car, picked the prince up, and they duly continued on their journey. Later, when the king and his entourage saw the prince, they were amazed to find him virtually unharmed. At the time, Dulgo Kensarimbeshe said nothing about the rituals he performed, but only later it appeared that he did them to avert the obstacle to the prince's life. Another time, Dulgo Kensarimbeshe was asked to give a lecture to a large assembly containing many very highly realized lamas and dignitaries. He told his attendant to fetch a book from his room and to turn the pages while he gave the lecture. However, someone noticed that actually Rinpoche hardly paid any attention to the book at all. Later, when they asked him about it, he said, Actually, I don't need a book to give the lecture, but there were so many very high lamas in the audience that if I didn't use the book, it might have seemed that I was bragging, and that would not have been very good. Perhaps Dilgo Kensa Rinpoche gives us a good example on how to behave when we do virtuous deeds. And now comes something the Buddhist teachings hammer home, especially if we are following mind training. The next instruction reads, Do not get angry. This applies especially when someone else harms us in some way. Of course, our natural instinct is to get angry and repay harm for harm, criticism for criticism. But in terms of mind training, this is the wrong way to go about things. As we mentioned previously, at such a time, we're expected to practice patience, and if we can, to develop compassion for the person doing the harm. I, for one, still find this very hard to do. I guess I've got a long way to go on this path. Then the mind training says, do not be changeable. This refers to the eight worldly dharmas, and if you don't know what they are, try remembering the verse, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disgrace, praise and blame. These are the eight states that affect worldly people. When they gain something, like a salary rise perhaps, they get very excited and elated. But when they lose something, perhaps they have to take a lower position, they can't get over their depression. Similarly, they always look for pleasure and love getting it, but when pain comes along, they can't stand it like children doing anything to escape going to the dentist. They strut around, pushing themselves to be famous, but when disgraced, contemplate suicide. And also, they're always ready for a bit of praise, but if they're blamed for anything, they skip away and try to put the fault on someone else, or they feel very miserable. Someone engaged in the mind-training practices can't act like this, Whenever any situation involving the eight worldly dharmas arises, the mind should stay equanimous, not becoming excited by gain, but equally not being much affected by losing anything. Also, 
We don't chase after pleasure all the time, like people who constantly indulge in the retail therapy or worse, and accept pain, working to incorporate it into the mind training practices. Like, for instance, taking it on with all the suffering of all sentient beings. As for fame, the poet Lord, Lord Byron had something to say about that. What is fame, he asked, and then answered, the advantage of being known by people of whom you yourself know nothing and for whom you care as little. And Jean-Jacques Jean Rousseau kept that with, fame is but the breath of people and that often unwholesome. So fame is not something people following the mind-training chase. But nor do they take much notice of disgrace. And here's another story I like to tell from time to time. It's about another high lama, though I forget his name now. He was a very much loved teacher, and people would flock to hear him. He must have had a bit of a, bit of a rock star charisma, because one lady decided she wanted to go to bed with him. Now this lady, this lama was a monk, so he, of course, wouldn't do anything of the sort. But the lady pushed and pushed, but he was adamant, so she grew resentful. She duly had a child by another man, and then one day, when the lama was teaching in front of a big crowd, she took the child to him, dumped it in his lap, and said, Here's your baby. The monk just smiled, accepted the baby in his lap, and continued teaching. Later he took the child home and looked after it. Of course, some of the audience were shocked. How could a monk defile his vows like that? And they, so they stopped coming to his teachings. But others kept their faith in him, and the monk just carried on as usual. Later, the woman realized she had been at fault and apologized to the monk. She asked for the baby back, and the monk handed the child to her without so much as a word of reproach. That was somebody really successful in mind training, don't you think? He didn't react badly to the woman, realizing that she was creating negative karma and so much suffering in the future, and he wasn't concerned about his reputation at all. He just accepted the disgrace as he had the fame, without any attachment or aversion. Similarly, people in mind training have to regard praise and blame without any mental distortions. And now, a little paradoxically, I'm going to quote a Catholic monk, Thomas Akempis, who said, Great tranquility of heart is his who cares for neither praise nor blame. And there we have it. If we want peace of mind, we can't really be bothered with saying we are either great or rascals. In any case, some people will like us and so praise us, while others will find anything to blame us for. It's certainly impossible to satisfy everybody. Some people even criticized the Buddha in his day. The final instruction in the mind training is, do not wish for gratitude. We're trained to expect that when we do something for someone else, we will at least get a thank you. Well, how much do you complain if when you're kind to someone else they just grunt at you? When following the mind training, we shouldn't care at all. Our only intention is to benefit beings and attain enlightenment, so the gratitude or criticism of others is of no concern. One text says that if we are happy, we can rejoice at having created positive karma, but when we are unhappy, we should just act to overcome our delusions and purify negative karma. Looking at our actions like that, whether others thank us or spit at our shadow, makes no difference. So here we've come to the end of this particular text on training the mind in the development of bodhicitta, 
the wish to attain enlightenment to be the, of the greatest benefit to all beings. Using these teachings, we can transform any circumstance, good or bad, into the path to enlightenment. And we can use them at any time in our life. Of course, nobody said the mind training is easy, and we are often fighting against our conditioning, so it can be quite a struggle. But in the end, we will be much more calm, peaceful and joyful, and even enlightened. Now our time together is up. Thank you for joining the program today, and I hope you'll do so next week as well. Please dedicate any positive potential we've developed with today's program to gaining enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. Thank you, and goodbye. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.